Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode. Sorry I had to take a week off there. Uh, I got sun poisoning and poison ivy pretty bad. So I decided to uh, not send you guys the podcast. Uh, I figured you guys would be fine with that. Uh, but uh, anyways, so excited to have this guest. One of my favorite people in the whole world, Mr. Michael Jordan, the bee whisperer, not the basketball player. Um. Michael had hit me up and wanted to come on and, and talk about some specific things. So uh, on this podcast, Michael and I, we talk about quite a bit. We talk about, um, you know, what spring beekeeping. So site setup is done, laws and our bees for me. So, you know, we talk about, we go over that again from his permanent ethos course. Site setup. uh you know, there's an episode two that they did for Perma Ethos about apiary setup and everything. So, and we go over all that stuff too. So hive stands, hive feed, water, site logistics, installing bees in the hives or feeding them, getting them unwinterized. Um, we, and we, we talk about uh, swarm traps, different methods for what you'd want to do coming out of the wintertime. I don't want to spoil it. Just giving you guys a heads up. Uh, just basically get you set up for honey flow and then also the flow hive, which everybody loves to tag me on Facebook and ask me about the flow hive. Hey, Drew Sample, have you seen this flow hive? What do you think of the flow hive? So anyways, guys, um, so yeah, excited for this episode to happen. Um, so let's get into the stuff that I need to talk about before the show starts. So first things first, um... You guys can support the show now. So I did decide to do a Patreon, and I'm slowly but surely getting episodes out on Patreon before they're 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 up. So, um, so if you guys so, and and I'm also open to so right now, obviously anything above five dollars is kind of silly. I've had some di- different ideas. So I, 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 you guys are the ones that listen. So basically, you guys are the ones that I'm I'm asking to to become patrons. So what what do you think is good value for you outside of just you know paying for this? So I think five dollars a month. I think it's a good deal. Some people might want to listen to episodes. I'm sitting on a lot of episodes now, so they might want to listen to episodes before they come out. Um, so that's five dollars a month, guys. You get that. Then anything more, there's some extra stuff that that we throw in. So. Um, if you just want to do a one-time, uh, contribution, I don't like the word donation. I'm not a charity. So, uh, one-time contribution, there is a PayPal link too in the show notes. Um, if you guys want for the mailing list, if you guys want to sign up for the mailing list, so I don't have any free giveaways yet. I'm trying to figure out what to give away for free to entice you, but I do finally have MailChimp figured out enough. So wherever, whenever I post an episode, you're going to actually get an email and it's going to give you kind of the show notes and everything like that right in your email. And then you just click and uh, listen from your email. Kind of cool. Um, so that's it. That's that's I'm done begging you guys for money. Now let's go to affiliates. So funny story. So I knew I messed up uh, the Bartlett pair and the Bradford pair. So I knew I was like, man, I think it's a good pair. So Greg Burns had some really good Bartlett pairs, uh, I think, or maybe the. But anyways, Greg Burns is sold out of everything, guys. I think he still has some comfrey. But go to naturesimagefarm.com, use code word sample, get ten percent off of whatever he has left. Uh, if you're local and you want to get a Thanksgiving turkey, um, that's coming out soon. I 
I mean, I, I, that turkey was delicious that I got from him last year. Felt cool to butcher it myself as well. Um, so yeah, so Thanksgiving turkeys are going to be coming up soon. So 10%, you get free shipping on Comfrey. I think he's got some Comfrey left, but he's pretty much sold out of everything, which is, which is awesome. Um, next affiliate. So you can still, if you go to versaland.tv or if you click on the link in the show notes, uh, it's the, the, the GIF for the course. He still has his free pawpaw course. Highly recommend you guys do it if you want to, if you're in the Midwest and you want to grow the delicious pawpaw. Um, it, it has a how to on how to, how to cultivate graft. I think he has everything in there. I haven't had time to take the course yet, but, um, everything Grant does is, is pretty solid from my experience. So, uh, check that out. Um, I have an audible affiliate guys. I finally happened, but they finally give me access and I can't set the account up. So we're not to audible affiliate yet, but pretty soon. Uh, you guys can actually sign up for free books. Basically, you sign up, you get any free book you want, um, and you know you just give them an email address, and then you set it up, and then you're good to go. Um, so that'll be that'll be out soon. I don't know when. Um, kind of getting frustrated with Audible. It's it's been a pain in the ass. Um, let's see. So if you guys are into, you want to lose weight, total body reboot. Uh, big fan of Kevin Geary's work. Can't say enough. Good friend of mine. Probably going to have him on the show soon to talk about other stuff. Um, he's a he's a pretty sharp guy, but big fan of his work. Uh, you click on that link. Uh, you know, Kevin, uh, I'm a big fan, so I'm down. I am almost down 30 pounds. And, I, and actually, guys, I've been eating that well, and I went back to drinking beer, and then I looked, and I'm like, oh, I'm still maintaining. Like... I've learned a lot of good habits and and just how you know how to reset my body. I'm I'm a big fan of the information that's in his course. Um, let's see if you want to start a podcast, podcast blast off. Uh, if you guys sign up, so I, I have this as one of the awards for patron uh, Patreon too. But if you sign up as an as through the affiliate and you want to start your own podcast, I'll consult with you about what I do to start a pot. What I do with recording my podcast, I'm always trying to improve it. Um, and actually I'm going to about to have somebody show me how to actually use GarageBand because I've been somehow stumbling through this for five years and I still don't know how to use GarageBand because I just kind of, well, this works, so I'm going to keep doing it. But so, yeah, so click on the link in the show notes, um, and you'll get that. And then last but not least, uh, it's farming season. So I've been pretty busy. I'm looking forward to bringing you this week's episode of Failing Forward with, me and my good pal Joel Cameron Harris are going to get together and we're going to do our episode. I was going to do, I was going to have one with Rich last week, but um, when Rich came to move in, my eyes were swollen shut from uh, sun poisoning. So it was an overcast day, guys. And apparently, if you don't wear a hat and you don't check the UVs, you can burn your eyelids and around your eyes. So when that happens, um, when that happens, your eyes can swell up. So that's what happened. So I bought some super aloe and was using comfrey salve and everything. And just, uh, I got everything to come down actually pretty quick. So I went all, went all in, but anyways, so back to farming, big fan of Curtis Stone's course. I'm actually re going through it right now. Um, mainly because, you know, when you go through something once without experience, um, 
you don't you don't fully maintain all everything. So now that I have more experience, it's it's everything's more down down point. So I'm feeling really good about this season so far. But click on the link so you can actually save a hundred dollars off the course if you click on the first link, and then the second link is going to be um, the second link is for the payment plan. With that being said, guys, I try to keep these under 10 minutes. We're at 8.23 right now, so we're going to be about 8.30. Uh, enjoy this show. like uh man i think i'm finally getting over this sunburn and poison ivy and then like i went out in my car and my hands just start breaking out from the just from the heat and humidity and i'm like shit so yeah man i got this nasty headache then and then uh so i've pretty much done fucking nothing all day i bought some <laughs> bought some stuff from uh a pharmacy like i was trying to use like natural stuff and i'm like man this is taking too long so i spent some money but my face is feeling a lot better and then uh from the sunburn and then my hands like i i got this stuff it's uh it was it was pretty expensive man for the poison ivy but i'm just like i need this shit to work i can't i got shit i gotta do i can't be just sitting sitting at home watching movies all day for the next week so man i'd like to be sitting you know uh (laughs) I got, I got like certain sections of my life that are like so busy. I wish I had like a doppelganger yeah. to kind of like help out. Cause every weekend I'm teaching a course and then during the week I have to prep for those courses. I have to keep up with the bee stuff. And then after my son got stung, I've been moving bees Yeah, and it was just been hectic. Uh, my dad uh, has an abscess tooth. Oh man. God, it, it happened on Sunday. Monday's face swell. Tuesday, uh, it was so bad that we got him into a dentist. And they started giving him antibiotics. Wednesday, they put him in the ER because he had uh, septic oh, from shit. the infection. His tooth got into the bloodstream. So now he's sitting in the hospital with uh, uh, problems because of, you know they're, they're trying to clean out his bloodstream, and then they're going to have to do emergency surgery and cut up and, and get in there to get that out. So man, it's just been hectic here. Yeah, that's <laughs> that sounds crazy. Well, and so like for people that don't know, so our 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 friendly bee man here on the podcast uh, from a bee friendly company. So you you were you had a permit to basically have fifty hives on your on your at your house at your main the property you live at, but now you have to move all your bees because it turns out your son is deathly allergic to bees. Yeah, um, I had an ordinance changed for the state of Wyoming about the hobby beekeeping. In Wyoming, there's like one law that was made by the biggest beekeepers in the state. Um, that's kind of like part of your uh, beekeeping book Yeah, that you make when you go and do stuff is like your laws. So our laws were basically made. The federal government said you have to have laws for each state because of pests like American foul brood. That's basically all the federal law says, is that you can have bees, they're an agricultural business, they need to be checked, you should have an apiary inspector. 
So then they give it to the state. And the state rights were basically the laws that fall underneath the guidelines for the farm and ag, right? The Agricultural Development Division of the United States. So your ag department for your state develops a law of beekeeping. Like Colorado, they have like, I guess, one apiary inspector. And I guess he hasn't been out inspecting a, uh, an apiary in like, I don't know, 30 years. Right? <laughs> it, it just has a law that says, you know, we can have bees. And, you know, they have big mite outbreaks, right? They don't do a lot of checking there. You know, there's a lot of people in Colorado that have bees. And, you know, they have mite problems and stuff because they're, they're, they don't care about the control or uh, people are big on catching swarms. And then they take them back and uh, you get down towards like Boulder, Colorado and stuff. That's like uh, Berkeley, California, that, you know, everybody's all natural and stuff. So they're not going to inoculate. They're not going to do anything. Those bees swarm taking more mites. People get them. So it's, you know, it's a problem there. But if you get like to Washington State, you have to, it's almost like being a falconer. Uh, you have to like be apprenticed by somebody. You have to take a state test before you can have the bees. It's it's a bigger setup to do like, you know, like Florida has some big laws. Wyoming has some big laws due to the fact that uh, we have lots of land with clover. So we're like a finishing ground for bees. Yeah. After yeah. bees do their pollination run, everybody sends them to Wyoming so they can get to the clover fields for the last run of clover for seed and stuff. So, you know, you get a lot of, a lot of honey here and then they go from Wyoming into South Dakota, which is the largest producer of honey in the United States because of the sunflower fields in South Dakota. So North Dakota and South Dakota produce the most honey because of the sunflower. And then we're like next, next to a couple different areas because we're finishing off crops before they get to the sunflower field. So laws are pretty important. And so I took those laws and made it so that hobby beekeeping could be available because it was just made for huge apiaries, breeding, uh, honey flow, pollination crops. And I made it so that, you know, a backyard beekeeper could have five beehives in his backyard. And then if you own the land and you're abiding by those laws, you should have as many hives as you want, as long as you're maintaining and operating for a fee. And once I got that law passed, I'm only 12 blocks from the state capital in Wyoming. So I'm down in Cheyenne. So I went right ahead and registered 50 beehives just to prove a point that, you know, I could put 50 beehives right downtown Cheyenne. I am baiting the law. Yeah. You know, we usually keep about 25 at the most because uh, once, once sometimes I build them up and then people buy them. I, I you know, I, I have some good hardy bees because of, of, of the practices that I run. And people want that genetic line for their apiary. So they buy them so they can produce queens or get some drones to breed with some of their queens that are swarming and stuff like that when they do uh, form suture seizures or they're doing splits. So they'll pick up some of my beehives so they can have some genetic line that they can breed into or they'll buy five to 20 hives from me and then start their own in certain sections using because my bees are, you know, I've been breeding my bees for the last six years. Yeah, you know, I've got yeah. buckfast bred in there. I've got some Africanized drones bred into them, Russians, Minnesota hygienics, right? I mean, you know, I've been working with some different breeding. I, you know, I've downsized my bees uh, two sizes. They're not the four point or five point six. I think they're five two, four nine, five two, somewhere in there. So I've already started downsizing my stock. So is that considered for, small, small cell bees then, from what what you bred them down to, or is it? Yeah, they're a small cell bee. I mean, you can see on the video that, you know, we're doing uh, Facebook Messenger 
live video. You see right next to me, that's a beehive. That has bees in it. Yeah. Just yeah. sit right here next to me. This little, this is an eco box by built by Albert Korpchak out of Salt Lake City, Utah. And it's a small scale micro bee management. So these are smaller bees inside here. This is all uh, pre, has no foundation. They build all this all by themselves. They, they populate fast in here. So you can populate and make more, more bees because the spaces are small. And you can see this is a small box of the little window. Right, so you can look in and see the bees, but I mean, this is only a 22 inches tall, right? The frames are micro size frames; they're only like, you know, like six inches long, four inches deep. So they're a small. It's all made to be small micro bee management. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Greg's because uh, Greg's actually looking to get into small cell bees. That was what something we talked about on our uh, our buzzcast, and I, I'm thinking. <laughs> If I don't get any swarms, I'm probably just gonna get some bees from him once he splits. Um, because I yeah, he can force he can force split. Uh, I don't think what people really understand. You're always looking for swarm season, or you're looking for somebody that's like manipulating their high. You can pull out, you know, because here, here's a technique, man, and this is something that I teach: is that a pa uh, when you guys order bees in Ohio, what are they costing for a three pound package with a queen? You know, I didn't even, I know it's expensive and I just plant, didn't plan on, I'm a bad person. Is it over 130 bucks for a package of bees? I'm pretty sure it is. Oh, no shit. Let me, I mean, I could, I can message somebody real quick. I mean, that's something to think about. Like, so let's say you're, you're buying a package of bees. There's three, there's 10,000 bees to a package. That's roughly three pounds of bees with a queen. And you're going to pay like $130 for that. And then you call up the same company and say, well, how much are queens? And they're like, well, queens are $25 to $30 a piece. So for $160, you get a package of bees with an extra queen. And what you do is you, you, you start off in nook boxes. Instead of going straight hives, introducing the bees into the hive, you get yourself a nookulus box, a nook. And you put a queen in a nook and another queen in another nook. And you dump half those bees in one nook and other half of bees in the other nook. And you put feed in them and you let them feed. Uh, in, enclosed in that high so they can't get out. It's like this high. This high is all closed off. These bees can feed off this jar here. And, you know, bees don't have to go out and defecate or anything. If you're feeding water and doing stuff, they can, you know, they winterize for over three to four months without any flight. So for a couple of days, I can, you know, for like a week, I can take this nucleus box, put feed and water to it, and have those bees get used to that queen for like a week to two weeks inside that nook box well if if they're if i'm feeding them and they're starting to bring out comb and i put in some uh, dead out comb in it so they can already clean it and get going she'll start laying and i went from just buying one package of bees for 130 dollars to where i got two nucleus two nook boxes for 160 and nucleus boxes costing anywhere from 150 to 250 dollars for maybe, nook. And maybe that's what I'm yeah, thinking because I know Greg's getting nukes and I know that or nooks. And I know I, I it looks like that was the preferred method. Yeah, nooks are a preferred method by by Langstroff beekeepers. It, it you know and it all depends on like what kind of, beekeeping has its own demerit. Uh, some people like package bees because they're getting nurse bees and they're already getting uh Queens marked and leveled and ready to go. And usually the queens are fresh. And if you're doing top bar beekeeping, 
You know, you can't put a nook in a top bar unless it's a top bar nook because it has to have open side frames. And it depends what kind of top bar beekeeping you're doing. If you're using barrels, they're round sides. If you're going straight like backyard beekeeping, the sides are a little slanted. If you're doing Kenya top bar beekeeping, they're a lot slanted, right? They're like a V almost. So that's made so the cone can wedge in and out of the beehive. It doesn't, you know, it's easier to cut the cone. Uh, so top bar beekeepers love packages because they can just dump the package in on their top bars. Langster people like nooks because they've already got a lane queen and brood that will be happy with some with some bees. So they already know the queen's lane because there's brood pattern in there. And it's all, you know, you just put that in there. Basically, it's almost like a, a beehive that's been operational for almost like 40 days. It's got a laying queen. It's got brood coming. It's got already drawn out comb. I just stick it in. She can continue laying. That brood hatches and they continue getting big. Where a package bees, you have to feed them. They have to draw out the comb. Then she starts laying. Then the brood hatches. So you just eliminate like three steps by buying a nook. I already have bees and she's laying. I just put them in. They're ready to go. So, you know, by, by spending, uh, like I said, if a package bees is $130, I just spend another 30 bucks and get a queen and I just make two nooks. And if I install those, let's say like April 15th by, uh, by June, those nooks are full where I need to stack more nooks to do increased essentials so I can do breeding capabilities. Or I'm able to start by way honey flow season just sticking in a nook into the box and let them progressively go during the honey flow season to build out comb and to fill that box. But I, instead of spending, you know, $260 for two packages of bees, I spend 160 and I just split the package and start off on a smaller demerit, saving money and building up. Yeah, that makes sense. So um, before I sidetracked you, so you had at one point you had 50 hives at your house. And then, and then you just found out your son got stung. So you've been moving hives. Yeah, I've been moving hives. I've been taking them to different locations. Sorry, I switched over here to a different thing. Yeah, I, 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 uh, I had, you know, I have like, I'm a, uh, I wanted, I got bee lust uh, one time in my life and I wanted everything bee. And I traveled across the world looking at everything from Turkish beekeeping to beekeeping in India to how they do Slovak hives to Germany where they do sun high. I mean, I, I wanted to learn everything there was to about bees so I could find out the best honey to make mead. And when I did so, you know, I got a, 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 one of the first generation wear hives. You know, Justin Bethel makes my CNC top bar hives. I have uh, Kempisi nook boxes i have like this eco box hive here i mean i've got like six probably different beekeeping systems and i used to have them all in my front yard <laughs> so people could drive by and you could say man look at all the bees then you would look and you would see oh he's got man these ones are in a cardboard box and this one's in an eco box and this one's in a top bar box and this is a weir hive and this is a straight line so you could see all the different ones so my front yard had uh, you know, six different types of beehives just in the front yard. And in the backyard, we would house anywhere from 25 to 50 beehives, depending on what we we're doing in the season. And I, I sold, I don't know, probably half my beehives in my backyard. 
uh, this last week, right? Because it's bee season. People are looking to buy package bees and stuff. And I was selling packages and I was like, do you, do you want a full functioning hive, right? I'll sell you one for 600 bucks. Two deep boxes, a queen excluder and two honey boxes. Bees already. I mean, you just take it. This year, you can either split that hive and make more hives or you can go straight for honey flow for 600 bucks. And, and I, I sold, and I think I sold 15 to 16 full hives. And then I wrote, lo, relocated some to a couple different apiaries I have in Colorado and then moved out my breeding and nook boxes out to my dad's house uh, outside of town here because I just can't have them around my house. My son got stung. He's got stung a couple times. He swells up. But this last time, man, it was EpiPen in the emergency room. Uh, he got stung on the leg and his eyes were starting to puff out. His lips were getting thick like Botox. He had a rash all over his body. He said his throat was getting itchy, so he took him to the emergency room and they epipend him, gave him a couple things of Benadryl, gave him an IV to pump it out. So, you know, it was one of them, one of them things that, you know, if he gets stung enough times, he's going to end up like uh, Shane. Yeah. And if you get stung, if you don't get somewhere in the next 30 minutes, you die. Yeah. Right. And I think that's basically how Shane is, too, that if he doesn't get somewhere in 30 minutes, he could die. Yeah, and I think yeah, that's what my son was. If he doesn't get somewhere in 30 minutes, he'll probably die now. So we, we're EpiPen back, houses, traveling, summer long, you know, and he will not be the beekeeper's apprentice anymore. He'll probably be the fuel management guy for the fuel company. <laughs> <laughs> hey, at least you got multiple enterprises that you can still teach in, though. That is the nice thing. Um, yeah, that's, that's, that's a key thing that I've personally developed is that I have three kids. I have the beekeeping company that has bees that we sell honey and all the bee products and beehives with. Then I have a section of the bee company that's educational, that we have programs and television shows and stuff that we teach education and travel and do education. So there's another company. And then we have the meadery that we're getting to open. So there's one. I have the fuel company that's open. So I, I try to keep three to four. And then that way uh, I've got to manage where they all can grow. I just keep them at a margin. And then when I get old enough, if the kids are old enough, if they want one of them, I will give them a company. And then that way they can start making, they can either make it grow into something huge or just use it like I do for uh, fundamental income and they can go about their own business. But, you know, it's, it's one of those things you try to leave some sort of legacy for your kids. And I thought I'd just leave them a company. And then that way, if they want to, I don't give them money. I give them something to make money. And if they don't make money with it, it's not my not my effing problem. <laughs> I, I did the best I could with you. I teach you the whole trade. Now you make this grow and you make money or you can hire people to make it make money for you. You won't make as much money because they're doing it, but it could grow and you could be, you know, somebody that has a couple companies or so, you know, apartment complex and a, and a company works really good because yeah. no matter what, I can always go, go stay in one of the apartment buildings <laughs> that I own and Oh, I still have the fuel management company or the bee company or the metery going in. That's how that was developed. That's awesome, man. And and Greg did he messaged me back. And I and I, I think when I said it's 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 over 165, I was thinking of the nooks. Um yeah. because he said a package is he said depends on the type of bees, but anywhere from ninety to $125 here. And I think usually the bees that we get are usually from Georgia. Um, I know in my B club, the bees all come from Georgia. Uh, Greg try, I know Greg said in our last podcast that he, he tried to purchase 
Ohio wintered bees and none of his bees made it that he'd purchased. So, um, you know, I, I think it's, and also it was his first year, but so, yeah, so I, I think it's normal pricing of bees. So I just figured I'd, I'd throw that out there, but, uh, yeah, that's, that's great, man. I mean, I, I think, uh, you know, something that somebody said to me when I was a young man is, you know, you can't leave behind a, a good job and usually you wouldn't want to anyways. So that's why you build a business or yeah. And, and so, and, and I think, I think that's great. I think it, for when I have kids or something, just even about, you know, just the conversations you and I had just hanging out that weekend, um, you know, I, I definitely, we definitely see things very similar when it comes to, you know, building things, not just for us, but for the future. And I think that's what, you know, permaculture really is, is kind of like what, what a lot of people get out of it. Whereas, you know, Greg and I like saying, you know, just being a hillbilly. Um, so, but, uh, yeah, so, you know, so you got these bees, you're going to leave him something else. You've been moving these bees around, but you know, a big reason why you'd initially said, you know, you wanted to come on and you hit me up and I said, that, that sounds great is, you know, this right now is the time of the season and it's actually so Saturday in the bee club. I can't actually go cause it's my grandpa's uh, birthday party, but, um, this Saturday is when we're actually going to be taking bees and installing packages. And so basically it's our first access to the bee yard that we get access to. Um, and, and that was something you wanted to say was, you know, this is the time of the year for people to, to get their swarm traps out, um, which you, you've made a, a lot of good videos of. Um, yeah, it's, 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 it's the beginning of the year. Uh, uh, I'm getting ready to go to Calhan, Colorado. Greg is going to show up, actually. Greg Burns is going to come all the way to Colorado. He's going to learn some stuff that that I'm going to be teaching here. So, which will be cool, though, you know, bringing the Lumber Squatch Nation to to Colorado <laughs> to we call it the Rocky Man Rocky Mountain Regenerative Agriculture Club, and it spans from Montana down to New Mexico and stuff. And it's it's ran by a couple guys, a Danielle Freeman, uh, Tate Smith. Uh, Jason, Ella, uh, I don't know if I forgot his last name. There's Ben McKibben. There's Rob Atwood. You know, there's there's a couple individuals that that, that span everything from urban uh, permaculture, kind of like I do. I'm more like kind of like Greg. It's not necessarily permaculture. It's just kind of like how I live. Yeah. But you have people that are like you know Ben McKibben, who's got you know him and Curtis Stone are like really good friends, and you know he does a lot of Curtis Stone stuff and. They talk quite a bit. So he's like uh, downtown Colorado, Denver, Colorado, and he sells produce to restaurants and microgreens to restaurants, and he's a beekeeper. And then you have someone on a whole other spectrum like Danielle, who, who's a farmer. He's, he's developing a farm to do cattle and horses and introducing wicking beds for chickens and guinea hens for tick control. And, you know, so you got bigger scale guys all the way to in, here in this area. You know, we, we kind of like to talk to about Greg. So when Greg comes to meet us, we're, it's going to be kind of kind of cool. But, you know, he's he's coming here to learn some of this information. And this is your year to start out. You're either coming out of winter and you have bees that you're I'm coming out of winter. Now what do I do? Or I'm a brand new beekeeper in this, you know, in February is when you order your bees. So you've already, you know, we, people are already talking about getting bees all the way in February. And now the bees are here, right? Uh, so what are you going to do with them? 
So that's yeah. that's basically it's like uh, my beekeeping design course with Perma Ethos. The first part, you know, the book I'm teaching uh, Greg and like I said, I'm going to send him back with the book so he can bring it back to you guys. It, it's a it's it's the system. It's a 40 hour course and it's the beginning 40 hour. I have four 40 hour courses. So the Perma Ethos, when you saw it, it says our bees for me, that's module one of a 40 hour course. And there's like 18 to 22 modules in the first part of the BDC, right? So, I mean, it's to get 40 hours in, there's, it's broken down into a whole bunch of different, different aspects. And I think that, you know, right now is the time, if you took the BDC course, you, you saw where it says, uh, are bees for me. And it covers the law, how you find your law, right? All the way to like, uh, we list the federal law, your state law, your county law, your city law, your zoning ordinance for in boroughs or developments in your city, all the way to HOA. So you need to know your law before you even get bees. You should know if you can, if you legally can have them. Uh, the second thing we get into is can you take a bee sting? Now that you can have bees, can you have them? <laughs> I mean, what do you get? Uh, how, how do you know you can take a sting or not? Like I said, uh, Shane didn't know. Uh, my, I didn't know about my son, right? I mean, so, I mean, if, if you get in and you start making this investment, is it going to kill you, right? So you can have that. And then we break out definitions. And I, in my book, man, I have, I don't know, there's, man, Anything from bee companies in my definitions, it talks about Better Bee, it talks about Man Lake, uh, Dannet, uh, Brushy Mountain Bee Farm. So I, I even include in some of my definitions like why I included those bee companies and what they what their preferences are. Like Dannet is one of the oldest beekeeping companies in the United States. So it's in there, right? Because if you need anything, they've got several locations throughout the United States. But I have Man Lake in there because Man Lake is employee-owned, and they are beekeepers that work for them, so they can answer questions for you. So I mean, you, you need to know terminology, where you get your products. If somebody tells you AF, uh, ABF, what, what are you looking at? And it's American Fowl Brew, right? So you, you, definitions is important. And then we talk about history, right? Where your bees come from? Who's locally here? You know, I, I trace my all the way back to Poland. One of my mentors is Lauren Huff. His family were beekeepers in Poland back in the 1600s. They're one of the groups of people that brought the bees from Europe into Virginia, where the bees came to America. The people in my area were the Bryant brothers and the States. That's their name. His name was Jack State and the Bryants. They were the first people to have bees in Wyoming. One developed the beekeeping program for the University of Wyoming through entomology, through Sand Springs. The other became the largest beekeeping company in Wyoming, containing six to 10,000 beehives. And this is, you know, these were the first beekeepers in Wyoming, and that's what developed our clubs and organizations. So our Bees for Me covers those four things. And that's, you know, that's one course out of 18 in that module. And when it comes down to beekeeping, you know, you get your laws, you get your bee safety, you know, your definitions, you get your history. And then it gets right into some really hardcore stuff of the season. What do you guys are going to be doing for the season and what are you expecting? 
So, you know, you have to know your uh, site location and setup. Where's your water and food source coming from? What kind of hive stands are you going to put the hive that you've got on? And what type of hive are you using? What type of bees now are you going to put in those hives? You need to know now the hive biology as well as the bees biology. Then you need to know what kind of beekeeping equipment do you need? Smokers? Uh, do I need hive tools? Do I need queen excluders? Do I need pollen traps? Uh, you need to know the different types of equipment and the budget for them. This is where you start developing your budget of how much am I really going to invest on having these noxious bastards in my yard, <laughs> right? So you have to know about your equipment. Now that you've got all your equipment, you've got, you know, you've ordered your bees, you got everything set up. Now it's time to install those bees. Are you installing packages? Are you installing nooks? Uh, then after you install them, you got to learn the different types of feeds for the different year. Everything from grease patties to keep mites down to hard sugar solutions for them to build comb faster to making like uh, botanicals and natural oils like Spikenard Farms uh, BT that they use where they're talking about recognitive memory for the bees getting their heads banging around and putting peppermint and stuff inside there so their digestive tract helps their tummies from eating the hard sugar. So, you know, you no need to know bees. And, and then once you get it all going, how do you how do you manage them? So you need to learn inspection and record keeping. You need to know how you're inspecting. What am I am I looking for wax moth? What does wax moth fucking look like? Uh, you know, are we doing beetle traps with hive beetles? You know, you, you need to know what kind of inspections you're looking for and what you're doing. Everything from queen rearing to drone barons. I mean, you need to know what you're inspecting, and then you got to keep a record of that because your hives are going to swarm. They're going to split. You want to know which queens were laying good, which ones were nasty, and I had to kill them. So you have to do your record keeping. Uh, then you, you know, what about the guy that's coming back that's already had bees and these bees made it over winter? How does he unwinterize them, and what is he doing? Uh, so you got to learn how to open the box and get them over winter. And then you got to learn how to flop the box and rotate frames, right? So you got to take the bottom brood box and stick it on the top because the brood, the brood of the bees was on the top of that box. You're going to stick those on the bottom so they can start working in the bottom and work their way up because bees work up. So we just built so we all of built our hives and we all have deep boxes and then we have the uh, mids. So we have two mids and a deep for each hive. So when, when they're wintering, would you, I mean, and this is maybe a, a question for, to, that we'll do probably at the end of the season, but I guess to kind of tie it together, would you want them to, to not be in a deep box to overwinter then if you're going to have to move it to the top? Now, see, that's, that's hive management. And there's two reasons why you go a deep and a medium. Uh, people that want to progressively make the bees supersede or what we call overpopulate, you smaller, you make their living conditions smaller. Then they overpopulate and you either can make more splits by natural methods, by swarm. Then you have to do swarming control at your apiary, building swarm traps, monitoring them, right? Or you're going to start pulling out the deep brood and separating it so that way the bees still have to continue working and you start splitting. That's one reason to go a deep and a medium or just a deep. But let's say you're going two deeps and 
the bees population isn't huge. So sometimes, you know, they have to keep a large, you know, the larger the area, the more energy they expend to keep it warm. So if you smaller the area, they'll have to keep a smaller area warm with so many bees. So if your populations aren't huge and you were, let's say you're running two deeps and they were doing really good and you, you had a swarm. Well, remember that took more than half your population now and more than half your honey because that swarm took it to go to start a new colony. And now you're stuck with this little, you know, double deep and not as many bees. You have to downsize that so they can keep that space warm. So there's there's a couple reasons. You know, the only reason I go to two deep boxes is when I'm doing splits is I like to pull out uh, frames with honey and pollen in it. And I like to pull out big frames of brood. And I take one or one hive with two deeps and I'm able to make three splits out of that. I'm not going to get any honey flow. But when it's all said and done, I have my original hive and then I have three nooks that I've made from it. And I'm, I'm, I, I, it's to grow apiary management. Uh, it's one of those increased essential methods of increasing what I have. That's the only reason why I have usually two uh, deep brood boxes. I usually run one deep and one medium myself. Okay. Right. And, that, and I think we do. That's just so I can populate more. And when I go into honey flow season, I expand their volume of room of work by adding uh, honey boxes. So they have to make, fill them up with honey. And then when I downsize, you know, I, I feed, you know, I feed my bees. I feed them from uh, uh, the beginning of October all the way until Mother's Day. I either feed liquid feed, fondant, and then liquid feed. And that's how I do it. Uh, my motto is I've got an investment. And bees are like an agricultural business. So I use some of the honey that I produce and adding other things to it, making some of the chamomile teas, peppermint teas to mix with my honeys, and then adding some sugars and stuff to it to fortify a good feed because I don't want to lose my investment. When I open up my beehives, do I have honey left over in those hives? Could they have made it without there? Yeah. But why would I take the risk? I'm not going to take a risk, dude. I'm selling a beehive for 600 bucks. That's a $600 investment. Yeah. Right. So I, I'm not going to I'm not going to lose the, the investment that I put into it. So I do feed. But when after Mother's Day, all the way until October, those girls are on their own. Welfare is done. <laughs> right. The, the, there's the welfare guy does not come in unless he's doing the treat mechanism. And that's like one of the things when we talk about the end, we talk about uh, rewards, fees and, and closing your beehive. You reward your bees for letting them come that you let their go that, you know, Hell, I, I go through their beehive, dude. I'm I'm tearing it apart. I'm looking at their cone, uh, the Gestapo coming into your house, going through all the stuff that you own to see what you got, and then leaving. And I usually, you know, I I, I make my own powdered honey. I take uh, honey and turn it into creamed honey. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, I take creamed honey and then I dehydrate it down and turn it into a crystallization form, and then I blend it in a coffee uh, grinder until it's powdered. And then I use that in a, a flower shifter. And when I'm all done working with my bees, before I close up the hive, I reward them by uh, doing powdered honey over. Some people do powdered sugar. The concept is, is you're giving them a reward that they've got to clean each other off of, and it's a good sweet reward. But when you do that, it also gets them to clean each other that they pull mites off each other. So it's a form of mite check. So now that I give them a reward, it has a purpose. So right before you do that, you reward them. You then go ahead and fill up feeders, add extra feed if you need to. Uh, sometimes I put in some honey frames if they don't have enough. 
and then I close and monitor the hive by making sure everything's closed up. Kind of like see this this hive here, we're inside of a building, and this is a hive that I can put inside the house. And it's got a glass, it's all closed off, none of the bees come out. I can hook a tube to this little hole here at the top that you can see and run it to a window, and then the bees can fly out the tube and stuff. And uh I keep this one uh, in my bedroom all the way in the back away from everybody because now the boy. So this one just basically stays with me. I travel with it. It stays in my car. I bring it to the school when I work. Uh, the kids in the science departments like to come down and look at them because sometimes I take it and I'm like tomorrow I'm going to Carpenter, Wyoming. I'm teaching fourth and fifth and sixth graders beekeeping tomorrow. Awesome. So I'll take this one. So I'll take this tomorrow. And I'll take some honey sticks and some coloring books that we make up. And then I go to Carpenter and then they can see an actual live hive going and all the stuff. So, I mean, there's when it, when it comes to like the size of your beehive, depends on what you want from your beekeeping management and what you're looking for out of your hive. And if the hives are manageable for what you want. I mean, there's a beekeeping is really simple. I put the bees in the box. I feed them. I keep an eye on them. They'll either make honey or they don't. But if you want to get real complex, right, uh, you, you want to populate more, you want to still make honey, what all, what all do you get out of it? Do I want to go top bar beekeeping? Because top bar, I have to feed my bees a lot. Because if there isn't a lot of nectar flow, remember, they're not building off a foundation. They're building everything raw off the top bar. They have to make the whole comb and everything themselves because we're not starting them with a foundation. They're building their own foundation. That means that they need a lot of food. So if you don't have a lot of food in your area for them, you're feeding those bees a lot to make top bar happen. Langstroth, you don't have to feed them a lot, but you know it takes it takes a lot of equipment to do Langstroth beekeeping because you got frames, you have foundation for those frames, you have to stack more boxes. That means there's boxes. Top bar, it's usually just one box and a whole bunch of bars on it. And that's it. I mean, you got to move slower and stuff, but they, you knock the comb off. You know, you have to work with the tops. You don't, you know, you have to work during certain parts of the day. So the comb's hard because, you know, when you work Langstroth bees, you do it between nine and two because all the bees are out in the field working. And top bar beekeeping, you do it between six and nine, from six in the morning till nine in the morning because you want the comb still cool enough to where you pull it out. If it sticks to something, you're not pulling it off the top bar because there's no frames. But that means there's still a lot of bees in that beehive. They're not out working yet. So you got to work them when they're cooler, so that way they're a little more docile when you're using your sugar water and stuff on them to, to work them. So, I mean, it's, the type of hive makes a difference. The, the amount of room in the hive, your climate, your altitude. We talked about that earlier. You know, my climate's high, right? Hell, I just had snow this morning. Right after we talked, I told you, man, it's, it's starting to cool up. Hell, I turned around and it was a snowstorm. I mean, chunks of snow that were one inch. I mean, just falling hard and quick. They did that for three hours. And then by four o'clock in the afternoon, you know, it's already melted and stuff, but it's cool out. And that has to do with my altitude and climate that I'm in. My health, we're so high up. We're so close to the sun. It could be a cloudy day and you're going to get the crap sun burned out of you because we're closer to the sun. All of that plays a difference. That's one reason why I like the permaculture concept is if you have to learn from where you are at or with nature to make a lot of shit happen. And it's, you know, size of your colonies, what types of beehives are you using, right? I, I think top bar beekeeping is hard where I'm at because it comes hot, cold, hot, cold, 
right? And, and that beehive is so long, it takes a long area for them to warm up. So I think I think top bark beekeeping is harder for me in my area. But I think if you're like down in Texas or, you know, Florida or places where you've got warmer climate and lower altitude where the bees can work all the time because you have floral, I think top bar is a good thing. I mean, I managed, I, man, I got so many beehives. Yeah. I don't, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. <laughs> well, so, so we were saying, I, I, I sidetracked you, but I don't mind it. Cause you always, you always share uh, pearls of, of knowledge about bees. Um, so you were saying, you know, when you're, when you're unwintering them, you want to, so you need to take the, the bottom, the bottom box that they're in and you have to move that to the top. Um, one thing that I know, Mark, he's like kind of a, he's a, he's a nice guy that I talked to in the bee club. He was telling me at the last meeting that he was trying to prevent them from swarming. So he was, and I think you called it deep brood. And I think that's probably what he called it too. But he was, he, he was seeing where there was, there was definitely new Queens that were being, they were going to be hatched out and he was moving them into different hives that he had to try to prevent the swarms. So he was he was moving queens and brood out into another hive. See, so there's the the management skill is that you do not want your beehive to swarm because you lose your bees. Now it's the most natural way of making colonies. So if you make good swarm traps and you're and you're out there and you and you're checking those swarm traps every three days, making sure that you have lemongrass oil in them, that the traps are up and not blown over. Like I said, my, my trap's made to have gyre wires on it and it's mobile. So that way you don't have to climb trees or throw rope over a limb and pull this up in the air or do stuff because the bee's natural flight path is 15 to 20 feet in the air. So they come out and do their orientation and they come in the air and you want something in the air 15 feet, 15 feet in the air. 15 feet away, 15 feet in the air, they just move right on into it. So that's good swarm management. But if you don't want them to swarm, you have to learn either what they call queen pinching and you're going in and they'll cap a queen in nine days. So a beekeeping book says you should be checking your bees every two weeks. Well, that's 14 days. A queen hatches in 12 to 14 days. So I went in and I inspected my beehive and I didn't see any queen cells. I might've missed some, but in 14 days, if I, in nine days after that inspection, they're going to cap a queen. If I'm not back in there in nine to 11 days to see those cap queens, I'm going to lose that beehive. So a lot of guys go in and they pinch those queen cells off. So now the, the hive doesn't have a possibility of swarming. They don't have a queen coming. Some other guys are doing what I, you know, we call it the 9-11 method. It's an emergency method, right? That basically every nine to 11 days, I'm checking these beehives. 10 days is a great marker, but if I can get a day before or if I have to get a day after, depending on work or what's going on, 9 to 11. I want to get in there and I want to see if queens are being ha uh, capped off. If they are or there's lots of brood, like, man, this one hive, this queen's laying so hard, I got seven frames in the bottom brood box full, and she's already moved up to the top box, and she's already starting to lay some more. Those bees are going to hatch. <laughs> You know, and I'm going to get around 1,500 bees a day, every day, until she's done laying for the for the summer. So basically, I want to remove some of those brood out. And let's say I have a hive that's weak. 
it's not producing as much as the other hives are in the amount of brood. So what I do is I just add brood to it. So when it hatches, those bees are already accommodated to the queen that's there. And now I've populated that hive with brood that wasn't being there before. And the hive that had too much brood, I eliminated so that way it doesn't overpopulate and want to swarm. So that's brood manipulation. Sometimes I pull that brood out and I find a, a queen cell and I put it with that brood and I dump some bees in it. And I make sure I have some nectar, some pollen, some honey, some feed, some empty cells for them to start off of. And that's splitting a hive because now I've got some bees in there, some brood in there, and I've got a queen that's going to hatch. That's a, that's a split. So there's, it just depends on what your management is. Are you just going to let them swarm and you're going to do swarm management? Are you going to do what we call weak and strong manipulation to where your stronger hives you're going to make weak and your weaker hives you're going to make strong? Or are you going to go ahead and split and make nooks? And that's for population and growth. And nooks can be made year round depending on overpopulation. Some people do it right off in the spring uh, to prevent spring swarming and let the bees really populate over the summer for honey flow. Because once you put the honey boxes on, now a big box of bees has room and they have to go to work. They've got all this foundation and stuff to make honey off. Or on top bar, I pull out the what they call the breaker board, which breaks the back part of the hive to the front part. I pull it out, allowing the bees to slowly migrate to the back of the hive, producing honey storage. So, I mean, it's it's depending on the hive and your and what management skill you're using, but swarm control or what we call hive population is important. Yeah. So, yeah. so this time of the year, like, let's say, so we didn't have that cold of a winter, like we didn't have, well, it got cold, but we've definitely had colder winters and it warmed up and got cool, warmed up and got cool. Um, and, and they were saying in my area, uh, you know, that, that can be bad for your, for your, for your hive management, just due to the fact that they might be ready to swarm early or they might be moving a lot earlier than you expected. And it was that kind of thing. So now is a good time to, to get ready for either if you want to decide that you want to split a hive uh, and uh, if you want to make a, a weaker hive stronger or a stronger hive weaker. And, uh, and, and basically now is the time of year to be, to be preparing for that and have, have your, I guess, infrastructure for either swarm traps or hives in place. Additional yeah, new right. boxes. Okay. Yeah, that's 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 exactly what that's that's part of that system of the new year is that you're either installing packages of bees or nooks because you have loss. The objects, every beekeeper has loss. They may not have loss this year, but they're gonna have loss next year. Jason Smith out of Texas, you know, he works with Jack, he's Jack Spearco's mentor working down there. That guy I'll tell you he's probably killed more bees than Mussolini or Hitler, right? Because the, the hives die. I mean, and he's manipulating them. If he's got queens that are too powerful and too aggressive, he kills them and he splits that hive. And half you guys are going to this hive and have, that hive's no more because they're too aggressive. So that kills a hive. So, I mean, you know, it's uh, you're going to have losses. So you're trying to experience a 10% to a maximum of 15% loss. That's all you want to lose. If you're losing more than that, you need to find out what the cause is. Is it bad food supply? And when I say food supply, it's not feed. Feed's different than food supply. Food supply means my bees are getting their storage from nature, 
what in nature is making their food supply? Are they getting their food supply from a bean field or a strawberry patch that's using pesticides and sprays? Are they getting their food from the Coca-Cola uh, cups that are being thrown out at the local Burger King? Right, it all depends because they might be getting some bad sugars and storing it for their winter storage. They're going to eat that bad sugar supply in their winter storage and come out next year fucked up. Just like humans. Just like humans. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's what you, you know, I mean, look how fat I am because it's so accessible for a Whopper. <laughs> all right, I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's easy to come by. So, you know, when, when we talk about uh, feed, we're talking about what we feed the bees. When we talk about food, it's what the bees are going to get. So you really have to kind of manage that that part also, because if your bees are foraging and they're getting bad food supply, that means they're storing bad food supply. Is it going to hurt you? It only depends if they're making what we call toxic or noxious honey. Then it's bad for you. Right. And that's like when we talked about Himalayan honey has a hallucinogenic effect. Or if you made tons of oleander or uh, what we call moonflower honey. And I mean, it has to be a lot. You can get sick, dysentery, poop yourself to, you know, God, that was a weapon made by the Greeks a long time ago is that they would uh, use toxic honey. They put them in fields of, uh, I think it's a stasia plant or something like that. And the honey just gives you diarrhea, makes you really sick. So if you were coming to invade my city, we would send some of our vendors out a little ways from the city, like their caravans with honey. And the honey would be this toxic honey. So your raiders would come in thinking that they were going to steal our honey supply and it'd get them sick. And over the next week, they'd be so sick that we'd be able to counterattack them because we poison biological weapon. Right. That's old school biological weapon. But you got to remember, there are plants that don't hurt the bees. Yeah. But there are plants that we spray or have genetically modified to have neo, uh, neonicoside toxins in them that the bees will take and store. And when they store these things, man, it's their food supply that they've made that's bad. So when you're coming out of uh, winter and stuff and you're looking for a food supply source, you know, it's you need to see what's around you because you're gonna have to feed your bees if there's not a lot of food. And then it's about what kind of good feeds do you make. That's interesting, that's man. Interesting. I'm still kind of blown away by the Greeks using bad honey or diarrhea honey as a weapon. That's pretty fascinating. <laughs> uh, you know, be, uh, you know, the Egyptians used to, when they first started colonizing and keeping bees, they made walls and they would hollow out the wall and make like a tube. And they'd introduce the bees to it, putting a wood door on the front of it. So you'd have a wall that might be, Oh, I don't know. 80 feet long, it'd be like a corridor. Because you got to remember back in Egypt, their their malls were not enclosed malls. It was open market. So you'd have walls and stuff going different directions and stuff to lead you to different areas, different homes, different settlements. And what it was for is they would hollow out these walls, keep the bees in it. The beekeeper would come. He'd manage the bees because the bees could fly out anywhere. Let's say you were coming to raid my village. I would lure your guys by chasing one of my guys or one of my beekeepers down one of these corridors. And as he's going through the corridor, he's pulling the lids off these hives and knocking the crap out of the wall. Now you guys are running through there 
and you're in, you know, if you got 50 highs and they're all open and the bees are flying out, now you're trapped. You're trapped in this corridor that we can either isolate you guys, you eyes off, or push you guys out of the area because the bees are so toxic. You guys are getting the shit stung out of you. So that was a form of fortification for your buildings. Uh, there was in Canada, I think it was in 87, a guy tried to rob a bank. Two or three guys went into a bank in Canada. They got trapped in the Canada with in the bank with hostages. They did their investigation. One of the ladies came up. It was her husband that was robbing the bank. And, uh, you know, just want to know if he's okay. You know, he, he, he suffers from severe allergies. He's supposed to be taking these medicine. They found out he's allergic to bees. They brought in a beekeeper. They dumped bees in the ventilation duct. The bees got inside the building. The guy was so deathly allergic to him, he gave up. He didn't want nothing to do with it because he wasn't going to die a violent death in, there in that building being stung by bees. Right, so they used bees to remove a bank robber out of a bank by forcing them in the, the system. The guy put the bee hive inside the bank and over, uh, they closed down the bank and over a two-day time period, you know, the queen sent in pheromone. They turned on the air conditioning unit. The bees got cold. They went back to the hive. They isolated off the hive. They took the bees away. And they used that to, to stop a bank robber. So bees for fortification and defense, you know, heck, you can throw a beehive in a car. Everybody's going to get out of that car. <laughs> That's just, yeah. I mean, we used to huck them over the walls. You know, they huck dead bodies over and bees. Bees, you know, the dead bodies would rot because you couldn't get to them because of the bees. And that caused plagues, right? Because you'd have rotting corpses and stuff in your yard and you couldn't get to them because the bees were all around and you couldn't go out there. So they'd use those methods too. So, I mean, that's. Like I said, I'm a, I got bee lust. I go through and I, I check everything I can. <laughs> yeah, I'm hoping to get yeah, this guy this on. Guy. Uh, he was just at our, just bee, our, our, uh, our, uh, our bee club. Bee club. talked about the history of hives um, and how, we, how hives have evolved. Yeah, super cool. Yeah, you were telling me about that he talks everything from skeets to like honey hunters. Yeah. Well, they didn't keep bees, but they'd go out and they'd hunt for them and capture the honey and take the honey from uh, feral hives that they were the hunters of honey and stuff. And yeah. And that's something that I, I just kind of learned about. I've never heard about uh, honey hunters and, and you had, and earlier in our conversation when I, when I talked to you this morning, you, 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 you told me some stories about different methods that people would use to hunt honey and honey hunting has been going on for years. I think honey hunting even probably predates beekeeping from the sound of, for, for recorded yeah, there's, history. There's pictographs in caves and stuff in over in, you know, from China and Turkey and stuff on where they have, you know, old old dwellings and stuff where you could see pictographs on the caves of the, the Egyptian honey hunters and probably even cavemen, right? Going and looking for the illustrious gold fruit. You know, there was there's always that one dumb bastard that says, you know those bees up there that sting the shit out of us? They've got something good I got to eat. <laughs> right? I mean, there's, you know, that's that's how you found your hallucinogenic mushrooms. Finally, one guy didn't die. He just tripped. And he goes, these ones. All my friends died drinking, eating the black ones. But these purple ones, that's the shit there. You know, it, it just takes one guy to try something. And, you know, I think that's what, it, you know, because, you know, honey's a superfood. It has water, minerals, sugar, protein. I mean, it's one of the one of the few food sources that has everything in it that you could almost sustain life by just eating honey. 
you know, it's, it's got a lot of stuff in it, especially if you're eating raw combed honey. You're getting pollen count in it. You're getting some bee dander, bee vomit. You're getting all that good stuff when you eat honey. So I'm sure collecting it was good. <laughs> especially through, especially through the seams. Um, um, I'm trying to think I'm what else you wanted to talk about today. So, so what, what I want to kind of get everybody interested in is, so it's beekeeping season and you guys there in Ohio, you guys have built your hives. Um, there's a couple things you need to make sure you know that everybody that's gotten into involved in beekeeping or they want to, there's three things that they should always know is that you should always get your laws oriented for where you are. I don't care if you're going to do it illegally or not. You should at least know what you're breaking. So that, that's the one thing I want to tell about is that you guys should really be looking at your laws. And the second thing is I want you guys to really look at your apiary setup. And if you're out on a farm, you have cattle, you have other animals. Now, I have turkeys, I have quail, I have chickens, I have my big dog, I have cats. Bees never mess with them. My dog's only been stung one time and it was his own fault because he thought it'd be cool to try to bite them. And it, that was the end for him. He didn't like that after he got stung. But the cats sit on top of the beehives and the bees don't mind them. And, you know, the, when I had rabbits, the bees would fly over the rabbits and no problems. I got chickens. They never eat the bees. Turkeys never ate the bees. But people that have animals and, and you have a big farm, you got to make sure that your beehives are protected from either cattle rubbing on them, deer, antelope. Uh, you have bears, you have skunks, you have raccoons, uh, possum, mice, ants, right? All that has to do with your apiary setup. And when you have a farm, you want to make sure that you isolate the bees away from your farm life. And then you also want to make sure you have proper predator control. If it's making uh, beetle traps to trap beetles, or if it's putting barbed wire and electric fence for bears, or even if it's putting up lattice, or we we, we don't use lattice, we're, we're using trampoline netting that goes around a trampoline. A lot of people when their trampolines are done, I, I pick up their netting for nothing that goes around that safety netting. And you put that up, and what that does is you alter the flight path of the bees. You make them go to the netting and then they have to go higher. Or you put netting up and so the bees go down the netting and then they find an opening and can go around the netting. And you make it like a maze so that the bees are either out of the flight path where traffic's at, like where your cattle are going through. I've got a great location, great sun, but the cattle run right through there because there's a cattle path that goes to the water trough. So I might put up lattice or I might put up a hedge or I might put up this trampoline screen and it, and it manipulates the bees to fly up over the path of where the cattle will be going. Now, if you're living in the city, same thing. Right, I have a beehive right by my uh, mailbox. I have it right by my front. I had, well, I had it right there. When you walked up, in order to get through the gate, you had to pass a beehive. That was part of my home, home fortification. It controlled the boyfriend from visiting my daughters. It was it was made there for a reason. And uh, at the dog. In order, you know, I, I finally trained. <laughs> well, it's a. Oh well, yeah, you know, and you got bees out there, right there by the porch. If, if the guy says, yeah, I'll have her home at 10 and he shows up at 10, 30, 11, you just tap that beehive with a couple pellets. And those bees come out. She comes inside. And he gets the shit stung out of him. And he'll learn that there's a reason why I said 10. Right. That's, that's, that's how you stop that crap. That guy making out with your daughters. You 
let those other girls tag him a couple times and then he'll be on time. He'll realize that. But, you know, the postman would come and for a long time, for the first three months, he wouldn't get out of his, his thing. He'd honk his horn. And I'd have to come out and get the, the mail from, I can just see on the video, dude, you're just laughing. <laughs> but uh, he, the, the mailman would sit there and he wouldn't come out. He'd honk the horn until I told him, I said, you come by every day. You should let those bees smell you. Get out, put the mail in there. Well, after three months, you know, he finally got out and he started looking. And the next thing I know, about five months later, he's leaning over the fence. And he's just watching him. I go, you, you're hooked. He goes, dude, it's fascinating. He says they just come streaming in. They land here on this bush and then they stream right in. And some of them have red little baskets on their legs. And you were telling me that's pollen. And some are red, some are yellow. And I'm watching them dart in and out. And it's pretty cool. And he said, well, they're getting used to you. They know that you're an object about this time every day you are an object that they have to deal with and you're not aggressive so they don't give a shit so i said you know those are those are things but if you come over here and you're banging around and you're all angry the bees are going to know that and they're going to sting the crap out of you so i said in the city you know we put up lattice we put up this fencing and it manipulates the bees to get around things that were pedestrian traffic would be and that's part of your safety uh installation as well as your site location that in the city you know I, I tell people your best bet in the city is to put them on top of the storage shed put them on top of your garage get them up high so their flight path is already high in the air because you gotta remember bees naturally want to be 20 to 60 feet in the air that's their canopy level right they're they're not naturally ground dwellers unless they're an earth bee bumblebee carpenter bee uh basilisk cover cutter uh I mean, there's there's other bees, but those are digger bees or wood bees. They live more towards the ground, but they feed. They're like omnivores. Sometimes they feed on bugs as well as nectar flow, like wasps. Wasps are big ones. Uh, mason bees, they're a ground dweller. They make their own little combs and stuff out of mud. And then they go out and they get insects and stuff as well as nectar. And they chew up the insects for their larvae to eat. So, I mean, there's... You need to learn to manipulate your bees by controlling their flight path. And that's part of, like I said, your, your site location. And I think that's extremely important is when, what kind of hive stands are you using to put your bees on? Yeah, Don, so you has, has, has those great stands. Yeah, man, they hold up to 500 pounds. Yeah, Senior yeah, brought some to the bee build and uh, they, were, they were pretty sturdy. Um, they're easy to set up. They're easy to move. You can make them as long as you want. You can hold 20 to 30 highs on them, or you can cut your four by fours into shorter sections and put one or two highs on them. I mean, they're they're a pretty damn good stand, and they got small legs that are sturdy and metal that you don't have to worry about like stuff climbing up on them. You can put them in coffee cans with oil, and you won't get, ever get ants in your beehives. And Daniel Freeman, they that that hive stand is a pretty good little hive stand. I like that. But, you know, it, it comes with many things. You know, guys say, I just use pallets. That's what commercial beekeepers use. Well, if you're setting a pallet on the ground and you're setting your beehives in the pallet, if you're not moving them like a commercial beekeeper does, you're going to have mice and ants build homes underneath those beehives and those pallets. Or you're going to have then, skunks come and eat all your bees. Yeah, because they're right there on the ground. But on a pallet, those guys are hooking onto them. They're loading them on a truck and they're going to the almond field. They're going to do oranges or apples. Then they're going to hit beans, cucumbers, squash, and melons. Or they're hitting blueberries or hitting clover fields or sunflower. They're moving them. 
those types of predators and stuff don't have time to establish. So yeah, setting them on cinder blocks is old school, but you know, a lot of those guys are moving their beehives. If you got a, if you're not moving your beehives, you know, you need to have a lucrative protection in a hive stand that's not going to blow over. That if something bumps it, it's not going to move. Like I said, Danielle's Freeman's, I, I've watched it hold 500 pounds of weight, not even bend. Right. So, I mean, it, it, that can hold a lot of weight bearing from honey flow or brood box rearing. Right. So, I mean, hive stands are pretty important. I think that's one of the bigger things that I think people do not think about. Well, I got a beehive and everything. Well, what are you setting it on? Are you, you know, are you, are you just throwing down some stuff? I mean, is it going to be in a location that floods? <laughs> uh, do you have proper drainage out of the area? Do you have afternoon shade? So that way the bees can start calming down and cooling down on hot days. Do you have first morning sunlight hitting the door? Where are your water locations? I mean, uh, do you, if you're not by a pond or a living stream, if you're in, if you're in Columbus, Ohio, downtown, are your bees eating the pool water at your neighbor's house? Yeah. Are they going across the street to the guy's bird bath, hitting his, uh, eating his bird bath water and hitting his uh, hummingbird feeder? The dude's gonna be pissed at you. He has no hummingbirds now, and all the bee, all the birds are gone because your bees are eating his water and eating his nectar flow, right? So you gotta. You got to implement some things. And when we talk about site location, you have to talk about the security of the site, not only for the bees, but for the people around it or livestock that's around it. You have to talk about not only is the location safe and for those areas, do I have proper watering set up? Because bees drink water. Yeah. If I don't have natural food supply, what am I feeding them and how am I orientating the feed supply? Am I open feeding? Am I putting feeders inside the hive? Am I putting feeders on the sides of the hives? Am I putting the feeders above the hives so the bees got to fly out and feed to them? Uh, am I moving the bees out of a flight path by putting the feeders in directions where the bees got to fly to those feeders before they fly away? I mean, there's there's so much when it comes to site location that I don't think people, I, I just did a thing, it's part of the BDC course with Josiah, and we did a live podcast talking just about this flat location, hive stands, water source, protection, sunlight. I mean, there's there's a lot that has to do with the site location. And that's one of your things, if you're starting your beekeeping this year, or let's say you did beekeeping last year, and you're like, man, every time I go in here, this, this bush that I had protecting my bees was hooking on my bee suit. Maybe you should find another location. Now or this is the time right now to trim that hedge, the shit out of the way, so you can work those bees out of that location. Give yourself five foot of room around that beehive. Because trust me, you don't want to hold a box and trip and fall. No. Yeah, I mean, especially you don't want to tear your suit and get stung by a bunch of bees. Yeah, they're going to find the littlest hole in that sucker too. Yeah, Duct tape is your biggest friend. You need duct tape. Buy, buy duct tape by the pounds. What do you think? Do you think uh, it's worth investing in a, a, a ventilated suit? Man, I think you should have three or four things. Yeah. You should have um, a beekeeper should have two to three veils. Something that he can tie on or cover his face up and you should be wearing a veil and you should get in the half. It's like when you mow a yard, I suggest you wear safety glasses. You should just get in the habit of wearing that shit. Right, I work bees without that shit, but I'm dumb. All right, I don't want you to be dumb. I want you to go out there and I want you to have a good time. 
right? So you should have a couple veils, something that you can throw on or your neighbor can throw on so you can watch them. You should have a bee jacket, something with long sleeves, has a hood on it and stuff. You can put on a pair of jeans and put on this jacket so that way you don't get the shit stung out of you if you're getting into that beehive. Because uh, a big bee suit, man, is is heavy and it's hot. So in the deepest part of the summer, the bees aren't going to be really aggressive to you if they have huge nectar flow. Yeah. So if they've got huge nectar and they're working and they're not really worried about you and you're just doing minimal inspections, a veil, gloves, or a jacket works good. But I think you should always have two bee suits. You should have a really thick bee suit, and then you should have one that's ventilated. Uh, the ventilated bee suits for when you're working your apiary all the time, going through your beehives, doing your 9-11 checks. You're opening up. You're looking for queen cells. We're looking to see how brood patterns are. We're looking to see if there's any pests. We're looking to see how things are working out for those bees. I want a really thick one when I go to pick their honey. Because just like me robbing your house, you're going to take a couple shots at it. Yeah. <laughs> right. So you're going in there and you're stealing honey and shit and you're stealing everything they got and you're going through that beehive flipping and doing all your stuff with it. The bees are going to come out. You might need something heavy. But on the other aspect, the reason I say two bee suits is that if I go to a different apiary, because I have uh, four, I have four of them in Wyoming and I have, I think, seven in Colorado. I don't want to leave one apiary and go the other with the bee sting sent on me. Because then I show up and they're like, they already smelled that banana pheromone. They're like, let's sting the shit out of this dude, right? Because he just showed up and he smells like he's already been lit up. Yeah. If I get a phone call and a guy says, hey, I got this cluster of bees outside of my house. You want to come get them? I don't want to show up in a bee suit that's already been stung and have those bees agitated with those people at that house. Because especially when I'm just cutting a limb and, and carrying off the bees, there's no sense of showing up in something that's already ragged or it has the scent on it. So. I'd say get two good bee suits, get a bee jacket and a couple of veils. Make sure you have some gloves that you like to fit your hands. Remember, you're going to be like the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. You're going to get caught on everything. It's going to be hot. Uh, I have a bald head, so I wear a sweatband because when you got that bee veil on, you're not going to wipe the sweat off your eyes, and when the sweat gets in your eyes, it sucks. You're not going to get that stuff off. So there's, you should wear, you know, some sort of head dressing, you know, bandana a sweatband or something because oh, you know what? you're not going to get to that stuff. If you have an itch on your nose, man, you're just going to have to like really rub it through the veil because you're not going to be able to pick your nose. The veil is in your way. So you should have a couple, a couple different things because if you rip your bee suit and you have hives open, let's say you, you know, you tripped and fell and you ripped the whole side of your bee suit. You got hives and stuff open. You got to go fix them. So either you're sitting there and you're duct taping the shit out of your side or you switch bee suits. I mean, those are some, those are, you know, two is one, one is none. So you should have a couple different things. Um, let's, let's, uh, let's go to opening season. So, you know, we've got our stands, we're all set. We've been beekeeping for a while and we talked about flopping boxes. Yeah. And I'm going to tell you, and I'm going to tell you why, and I'm going to tell this system. Bees naturally move up. So in the wintertime, they colligate to the top of the beehive because heat rises. And they'll keep the warmest part of the hive in the center, which is the nucleus of the colony. So it's in the center of the hive at the top. They're going to branch off and eat nectar that's on the top. Well, they're going to eat everything in the top, and everything should be clean in the top as you're feeding them over the winter. So when summer comes, or spring, which is right now, 
there's nothing in that top box. But this is where the bees want to go is up. So what you do is you take that top box and you're going to put it on the bottom. So the, what we do is on our high stand, as I said, a brand new bottom board. Bottom board. And, and, and we talk about different bottom boards, screen bottom boards, and then we talk about hard bottom boards. A yeah, hard bottom we did, board. Uh, we did the screen bottom boards. Okay, so on a screen bottom board, you set a new screen bottom board on the bottom, and you make sure the panel's inside. Because you don't want airflow, because it's still too cold right now to have the bees, you know, really, really get warm enough to have the screen open. So you got to make sure you have a panel in the bottom to isolate so they can keep it warm. So what I do is I set a brand new bottom board down that's clean. I take the top brood box off, and I set it on that bottom board. And I pull the end frames off. I split the nucleus, and if the end frames are like only one or two years old, I put those in the center. And there's a way that you've got to do it. You know, your frames, there's called, it's called the XYZ. Uh, bees make a Y and an X on their frames. One side's X, one side's Y. So when you stick one frame next to a frame, you have a Y, an X. The next frame has a Y and an X. If I put two X's together, they might build the X into the other X. And they might build the other Y into the other Y, making this one frame useless, but this one's got thick-ass comb on it. That's how the bees develop their spacing, is they make one side of the frame X, one side of the Y. The next frame is X and Y. The next frame is X and Y. When you pull those frames out, you can't turn them. So they're X, they're Y, Y, X. When you pull those frames out, if you stick them in the center, you got to have them the same direction that they were facing when they were on the ends. You stick them in. And what you're doing is you're taking the end frames off. If they're old frames, you're rotating bad comb out. And every five years, you're supposed to be rotating bad comb out. If it's too dark to see through the comb, if you hold the comb up to the light and you can't see any light coming through it, it needs to be pulled out. It's too dark. It had too much foot traffic. Too many broods have been born in it. So what we do is we take the top box, set it down. I pull the end frames off. Those end frames are going to be for nucleus brood bearing. So I can put those into a nook box and the queen can start laying in them. But then I split the nucleus in the center and I put brand new frames in. Now I flop the box where all the bees are at the bottom now. And they've got brand new frame where they've got to start building comb. So I put them to work. So she can still lay in the other comb that's there. But now the bees in the center have to work to build comb. Now I take the bottom box on the original hive and I set it on the top. Now that has some honey and it has some stuff left over in it. And the bees are naturally going to go up there and start cleaning that out. And I'm going to do the same thing with it. I pull the end frames out, split the center and put new frames in it. Now I flop the boxes. I put the top on the bottom and the bottom on the top. And I've rotated out frames for them to start building in the center. Four new frames, two on the top, two on the bottom, and the rest that they can start working. Because the bees are going to want to cluster at night still. They're going to cluster where they can keep brood warm. So they're going to pick a side, and they're going to start building that center comb for her to start working. And what you're doing by this method is moving the bees from the top to the bottom because they'll clean and move up over the summer. And that way, during the summer, you can either flop the boxes one more time, or you just make sure they have enough nectar and honey flow to winterize. 
And that's that, that keeps you from getting bad comb and it makes the bees go from the bottom to the top every year. It just helps them, it helps them move and migrate. It stops early swarming because now the bees have to work. They've got more room. And it's, it's just, it's just, it's just a good method. So when you're coming out of your winter, and then right about here's this time is a good time because right now we're going to pull the winter cover off. We're going to go through and see what if the queen's already laying brood, right? Do we need to start moving that brood out so they don't swarm early? Because remember, the bees are at the top. They've already probably started laying in the top. We want to switch that in the bottom. And that way they have more room to go. And then we're going to start introducing liquid feed to them because we want them to start filling that new comb fast. Or we just put new bees in our packages into our hive. We want to start filling filling that comb fast. So now we feed them with the with the high density sugar, right? I mean, and you can use old honey, right? You can put old honey frames or whatever, and and you and people do that. And so when we talk about flopping boxes, this is the time that you do it right now, because that'll give them time to start building it for honey flow when it comes towards the middle of the year, you know, June, July. Yeah, and that that's the sense. flopping. That's the flopping of the box. You know, you can get more detail about it. You know, by looking up from AE Root and stuff about box flipping. And uh, uh, Michael uh, Bush, man, that dude's got some great stuff. Natural beekeeping, and he talks about flipping boxes. A lot of us flip boxes because it helps con control swarming management, rotates out our frames, and gets the bees building earlier by moving them to the bottom of the box. Yeah, that makes sense. And that way you're setting yourself up for honey flow too, right? Yeah, right. Because when, because uh, in the springtime from March all the way until I'd say Mother's Day, and this is my location. It's like in Texas right now where Jason Smith is or like Oklahoma where Jason Elliott is or in California and Florida, the bees are coming back. You know, those guys have already flopped boxes way early, right? They're getting in their honey flow now. Because they're going to have temperatures. You said in Ohio it was eighty. It, yeah, it was. It was. It was one of the. It, so it's. Uh, it's abnormally warm right now in Ohio. So. See, because right now, like I said, we had snow today. Yeah. The temperature's thirty-seven degrees. Right. Yeah. So right now, my bees are still winterized, and after Mother's Day, right? Because what I did is I installed my nooks and my packages bees now, and I winterized them. I put lots of liquid feed in there, and I kept those bees warm all the way until Mother's Day so they can eat all that feed. But after Mother's Day, the liquid feed goes away and welfare's done and they got to go to work. But by that time, they should have built a lot of comb. The queen should already be brooding and going. Uh, when we go to making feed again, I make liquid feed about September and I feed uh, into September, October, and the beginning of November liquid feed. That way I can sure to make sure they've had a lot of food and I've juiced them up because Basically, at that time, I've stole all their honey storage. All the honey boxes are at the top bar or whatever. I've, I've cut out comb. I've stole honey supply from them. So right now, I'm going to feed them a liquid feed to make them feel comfortable that the honey's gone. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And well, when November and it really starts to cold and the honey sugar would start freezing, I go ahead and I make fondant. And we introduce fondant to the beehive and we close them up and isolate them. So all winter from like middle of November, December, January, February, beginning of March, they can heat fondant and their storage supply. So they're eating some good food that they've stored and they're getting residual sugars so they can burn it to keep warm. And then we feed them liquid feed again, March, April, May. 
That way they can start building the comb. We can start introducing the new packages. We can start getting them so they're, they're bulking up because they probably ate all that fondant. They probably ate all their honey storage over the, over the winter. Because in January, they eat 24 pounds of honey. Wow. wow. February, they eat 24 pounds of honey. So right there, you're looking at 40 pounds, roughly, in two months that they need to eat because there's nothing for them to eat. They're trapped in that box, right? And if you're in my location, we have five months of Darth, right? There ain't shit blooming here in October. So October, there's no honey flow. November, there's no honey flow. December, there's no honey flow, right? January, February, there's no honey flow. March, we might get some dandelion started, right? Right. But we don't see shit until the end of April, beginning of May. Yeah. yeah. We're still getting, like, that's still getting snow. Hell, it's, it's already March 27th and it's snowing here. April 27th. Yeah. April 20, yeah. April 27th. So we're still getting snow. Right. We're not even into May yet. And Mother's Day will be coming up. We're, you know, I think it's one of the biggest scams of floral departments is that they break out all these plants and the weather's starting to get good. You should plant shit. then that frost comes before Mother's Day and kills all those plants, and you got to go rebuy all those plants again. <laughs> right? So I usually just wait till after Mother's Day, and then I take my pack, I put my, you know, I check my bees, I open them up at this time on days that are 40 to 60 degrees, making sure they're okay. But I don't take the winter covering off, and I don't stop feeding them until Mother's Day, because then I know after Mother's Day in my location, I have uh, honey flow starting. It's not, and, ground frost isn't going to happen again yeah so then my bees can start working right so those are but that's that's your management skill and that depends on your location of the world your altitude your climate all those pay pay vital things that's why i talk about history if you have beekeepers that are beekeeping clubs that have been keeping bees and then and and they have history of, of doing it for 20 to 40 years and that's why i say get a beekeeping club because if everybody in the beekeeping club's telling you don't unwinter your hives yet. I wouldn't do it <laughs> just yeah. because the book says, Oh, you know, in February we can start opening the hives. Yeah. That guy wrote, wrote that. And he was from Argentina, <laughs> <laughs> right? He doesn't ever winter his beehives. Right. So he really doesn't know. Right. And in Alaska, right. They're going to keep their beehives wintered all the time. Right. They don't, they, they, you know, they even have no sun for a long time. So they, you know, they, there's different measures of where you work and, and where you live to work these bees. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then, uh, I think so. I think finally, are we ready for the, the final topic of the conversation that, uh, I know because people know I'm into, I'm interested in bees or that I'm going to keep bees. So people are so kind to tag me in this video, except they've only been tagging me on this video for like the last two years and every time, well, no, it's, it's probably been since, uh, I don't know, probably since October, I've been getting tagged in these videos. And it and it seems like there's a different person that uploads it every time. And it's this great new invention that's not a, a new invention at all. And I, I love to tag you and Senior on it because you guys always say, uh, say what, what, yeah, don't waste your money. The Flow Hive. Let's talk you about the Flow Hive. So let's say, you know, we went through this whole spring season. Right, we, 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 we got our bees unwinterized, our location's great, the bees are coming out strong and ready to go. And after Mother's Day, the bees are supposed to be making honey flow. So we put on our honey boxes. 
And a honey box, which is a medium box, produces around 30 pounds of honey. That's the average, minus, plus, depending on, you know, if you built your own boxes, your own, you know, there's many variables, but we usually say 30 pounds of honey comes from a honey box. So that means basically on a 10 frame hive box, each frame produces about a pound to a pound and a half of honey. That's 30 pounds. So a honey box makes 30 pounds. That honey box is, each frame is about dollar. So you have 10 bucks in frames and then the box itself for 20 bucks. So a honey box is about $30 to produce 30 pounds of honey, right? So it's your, you're spending basically a dollar a pound on a honey box. That's a good Two deal. Two honey boxes, huh? That's a good deal, a dollar a pound. Right, to, for the honey box, right? So that's basically what it's costing you to produce honey for the material. A honey box is going to cost you about $30 to $40. It produces 30 pounds of honey. Now you can get a, a, a flow hive box to produce the same amount of honey for $400. I think it's worth it. <laughs> so, I mean, here, here I went from producing honey from $30 to $40 to produce the same amount of honey, $400 to $600. Now, I get it that you don't have to get it a, a spinner, right? You're not spinning honey now. You're just going out there and you cap off your mason jars with saran wrap and you're just turning a nozzle and it runs the honey. In, in 1940, J.B. Guerrera from Spain invented what he called the mechanical hive flow box. 1940, it was made basically exactly, in fact, the blueprints for the flow hive from Australia is the identical blueprints that are now open to the public because of patents. After so long, patents don't carry anymore. But it was patented in the U.S. Patent Office by J.C. Guerrera in 1940 was the flow hive. And it was an astronomical price and no one bought it. Just because of what I just said, man, it's just, well, I could just buy a, a box, man, I could make honey. Why would I buy all this mechanical mechanism stuff to make it? And it's really super cool. Don't get me wrong, right? You put in, you turn the gear drive, it splits the comb, the honey runs out. It makes a cool, a cool viral video, that's for sure, that everybody well, loves to tag us in. If, if, if they would have had viral video back in 1940, I'm sure the guy would have did good. You would never see the flow hive. You'd see J.B. Guerrero from Spain. Yeah. Now you got to remember now that the flow hive is out, there's two companies in China that make them. Uh, you can get the same flow hive box made in China for 200 to $300. So it's half the price. But it comes from China. So right. most so engineered well. Well, it's they can mass produce them, right? They they, yeah. they have the technology we can rebuild them. <laughs> so it's one of those uh one of those things that you know they they have cheaper material, mass more labor, so they can build it cheaper. And now that everybody's using the design they saw popular, where's everybody's building them? I think there's even a guy now in uh I don't know if he's Pennsylvania, but he's even making his own flow. He three D prints his. That's pretty cool. Right. So I mean he's. I mean, more people with it. So we had uh, we had a slight. My uh, internet decided my web browser decided to stop working, so I just changed Wi-Fi's. Um, so what I'm looking at, what Michael was talking about earlier is, and I got a picture of it, but he's got this awesome micro hive, and uh, 
I'm I'm just blown away by it. But I think what's cool about that hive too is it really kind of I mean it looks like it's designed for the small cell bees, right? Yeah, it's it's well, it's made for any type of bee, but it's made for it's it's it has it's integrated three systems. One is micro scale management, so you're able to produce queens faster. You're able to produce myro colonies because the hive itself is small, so the the colony will build faster. Each one of these layers only has five frames in it. And you can see the frames are only 